Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. My guest today has over two decades of executive level marketing experience as the chief marketing officer for Walgreens. Patrick McQueen is responsible for the vision, strategic direction, and performance of all marketing activities, including marketing collaboration, design, and execution of the iconic brand that he's working for there at Walgreens. And he's worked with other leading brands such as TD Bank, Capital One and Verizon Communications. I talked to him a little bit because I'm very impressed with the fact that he's adopted and stepped into his role in such a great way. Even though he's been there for a number, a couple of years, man, he sounds like he's been there for 20. And so I'll ask him about that in the show. Patrick, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Thank you, Jeffrey. Great to be here. How are you doing? Doing great. So, hey, you're in the C-suite. Are you guys going to the office or are you all working remotely? We've just started to go back um, periodically. So you'll see a few of us in the office, but it's still very, very virtual. And listen, everybody's just become comfortable with it. It's uh, it's a new way of working. And uh, I've never worked harder, to be honest. So I, <laughs> there's no lost productivity here. You know, we would have said it was impossible before. And now we're saying not only is it impo- possible, it might even be preferred. Have you learned some good lessons as a result of being a part of the C-suite? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've we've um, we've learned to operate a um, you know a, a massive organization, a massive operation um, uh, without physically being together. And you know, it used to be we'd congregate every Monday morning for the you know executive the C suite meeting, and you know we'd all be in the same room. And um, and now it's uh, it's all virtual, and it's just as effective. And um, you know, we we're, uh, we're we're getting everything done, and um, and people have just been. People who were in such a routine day to day, and then the routine is is blown up, and they're used to you know their whole careers face to face interaction and you know in meetings and then uh, having to adjust. I, I'm actually really proud of of our team because we've been able to do it um, really really effectively, and it's surprising in some ways, but I think this is just we're all learning a new way here because it's been forced upon. Well, and I think it's been great because Walgreens has been one of those essential businesses. I know personally, I've had to go there a couple times for different medications or things, you know, I, um, and be able to know, hey, it's there, it's open, and it was reliable, and that's been great. So thank you for that, and thank for all the employees, you know, because you know we talk about first responders. Well, in this case, your business first responders, your community first responders, because you're there and, and you've been open, which is it's just fabulous. Not everybody's been able to do that. Yeah, well, thank you for that, Jeffrey. And um, you know, our employees, our team members, are really the the heroes. I mean, they are on the yeah. front lines, and it's been amazing to watch our organization and the the operational capability that we have. Uh, first and foremost, we knew uh, right away that we were going to be declared an essential service, and so we really went into action mode right away. And so, the first priority, obviously, has been the safety and security of our team members and our customers and our patients, and so. You know, very quickly, new uh, you know cleaning uh, regimens. Um, we put a lot of communication in the stores and in the market on uh, what social distancing techniques customers and patients should be abiding by in order to keep themselves safe. We put plexiglass in all of our 9,200 plus stores. 
We started wow. implementing, you know, new ways of, of interacting with Walgreens, uh, uh, retail products through drive-through, uh, online ordering and pickup curbside. So it was, it's just been amazing to watch the brand activate and really amazing to watch the operations of a company that operates 9,200 stores, 230,000 team members. Uh, it's been great to be a, a part of and I'm very proud of everything we've done. Well, I, I gotta. I'm just thinking through. You say you put plexiglass in 9,200 stores, which I, I'm. That's just first of all, you got to find 9,200 pieces of plexiglass. <laughs> then you got to, you know, standardize. You got to do all that. I, I'm just curious, how involved were you and the C-suite in those kinds of decisions? I mean, I could I've been through emergency kinds of activities, you know, where really bad emergencies where someone came in with guns and set fire and things like that to that extreme. And of course, this was an extreme, in my opinion, because it was unprecedented, right? No one had a contingency plan for this, right? You had contingency plans in case you go down. But from a C-suite, I don't think you pulled out, hey, here's our pandemic uh, you know, <laughs> playbook. So how did it unfold? I mean, did you guys just get on the phone, start huddling and someone said, Hey, we're going to need plexiglass. Uh, Hey, we're going to need stickers for the floor that space it out every six feet. I mean, how did you do that? Yeah. I mean, we went into, uh, we really went into, um, operation, um, uh, you know, regular two day, um, uh, two times a day meeting C-suite involvement, um, president of the company, uh, all of the um, uh, executive operating committee meeting uh, members would be would be in those meetings, and it was really an all hands on deck approach. And um, you know, we um, we would it would be a combination of just information flow, where um, obviously we've got a whole team that has been very close to all the um, the health agencies, government agencies, CDC, et cetera. So there was a readout on what the latest guidance was from the government agencies and other world health organizations. Well, I believe your CEO, if I remember right, if my memory, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, your CEO was even involved in the task force. One of the task Absolutely. Force. Absolutely. So we were very involved and um, you know, we wanted to be part of the national solution for testing and for, um, you know, uh, education and everything that we could do to activate. And, and uh, if you think about the capability of the company having, 9,200 yeah. retail locations, having pharmacists in every one of those retail locations. The role of the pharmacist through this has expanded significantly where, you know, they're now doing um, uh, testing and, you know, they've become a critical resource. They've always been a critical resource in every community and every neighborhood across the country. But this really put a fine point on it because yeah. we were able to support on a national basis, the task force and everything the government was trying to do to, uh, you know, to, to get testing in place and, uh, and all the, all the things we did in cooperation with them and other leaders in the, in the space. I'm even thinking about the added responsibility of that. I want to come back and ask you about that because uh, you couldn't go to the hospital. If you, if you maybe thought you had symptoms, or whatever the hospital said, don't come wait, wait, wait. And then uh, I'm sure you were thrust into that. Let me just take a quick break and we'll come right back after this message. C-Suite Radio. Hey, we're back uh, live casting right here on LinkedIn and Facebook as we're bringing you all business with Jeffrey Hazlett. I have got my friend Patrick McLean here, the chief marketing officer of Walgreens. We're talking about response to COVID and how it C-suites uh, actually adapt and change when you don't have a plan, but you've got to develop a plan and you look around and you go, hey, Someone's got to be in charge, and it's you. And that's what happens when it comes to these kinds of things. I'm still surprised. Um, 
and I want to get back to the pharmacist in a second, but I'm still surprised that you guys got down into those gut level decisions sometimes. You know what I mean? Because as C-suite, we're supposed to be strategic, but you guys were really making these kind of like, who's opening the doors? How are we going to do the doors? What do we, you know, how often do we wipe it down? I got to imagine you were down to that level. Uh, In a way we were, and in a way we were the streamlined decision-making group on those decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So clearly um, there were massive numbers of teams that were in place to evaluate all of those uh, options and come with recommendations to the group. Um, but having that regular forum with all of the leaders together, it just, you know, it, 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 obviously there was collaboration happening in real time, but then decisions were made on the spot. And well, let's think- take like those plexiglass. I mean, just use that. Yeah. Normally that would have had to gone through procurement. You would have had to bid it out. You would have had to done this. It would take, and then if the, if let's say that it was a single source supplier, you got to get them approved their purchasing, right? You got to make sure all that. And in this case, I would imagine someone said, just go. Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, some of those, some of those disciplines were still in place, but they were accelerated. And I think that was the learning for us as a, as a C-level group is like, wow, we can do this and we can accelerate process and timelines don't need to be that long. And, and we can make decisions faster and we can prioritize. And those are, those are all the things that hold, um, you know, big organizations back sometimes, especially when you're in a, um, a situation of market conditions like, like we are, where we need to transform our business. And I think we honestly learned, Jeffrey, that we can do it and we don't need to be, uh, you know, big company bureaucracy about it. And we can be better at prioritizing and we can get things in market in a, a quick and agile and real-time way. And we can we can work still collaboratively, collaboratively as a group, but um, operate in real time and make decisions in real time based on what's in front of us. So, um, well, listen, I've been part of a big multinational company. Didn't do the retail. I supplied to Walgreens, so I've known many of the CMOs at Walgreens prior to your arrival. But the uh, you wouldn't think of Walgreens, and no, it's not meant as an offense. It just means that I'm just putting it straight as an agile company. All right. I mean, big companies typically aren't agile and you're laughing. So, you know, kind of what I mean here. But what what are you institutionalizing as part of this process? So you've learned that, hey, we can do this. So what are you going to put in place? Do you have a team put in place to say, capture this stuff and here's the best practices. And now let's start adapting and utilizing this in our new in our new normal, our new work order. We're doing exactly that. So uh, what you're seeing is, um, you know, we are now um, getting hyper-focused on prioritization of investment. And um, we've got senior members of the organization now, um, you know, focused in a similar way that we've been in crisis, focused on those top priority items. So, you know, it's things like, um, you know, clearly omni-channel and everything that we need to do to to make a seamless experience for the customer across digital and store, et cetera. Um, the intensity of that and the customer expectation around that has been heightened through the, through the crisis. And so we have a dedicated team now that's focused on investments in that area in order to be responsive of this new place that we're finding ourselves in. And what's interesting about that, Jeffrey, is it's not that we didn't know that omni-channel and you know, a seamless customer experience wasn't important. We knew that, and there were projects going on across the company in isolated ways, and a whole bunch of work happening. 
But now it's a totally different um, time frame. It's a totally different landscape. And so we've now organized ourselves on that priority and a couple of other key ones that we're driving um, to make those investments quickly, um, organize teams so that they're focused, and we've got C-level attention on it to make decisions and remove barriers that were there um, you know, before we hit this COVID period. So in, in a lot of ways, I think our company in particular has benefited from it because we went through it all as an essential service. We were able to learn. And I think that's, a, that's you know, probably a lesson for uh, folks who work for companies that um, you know, were not able to continue operations during this period is, is watch what companies like ours are doing coming out of it. Um, yeah. Because we have learned through it. And we can signal in a lot of ways um, things that you guys should that you should be taking to heart uh, in terms of uh, your own um, you know model moving forward in terms of how you operate. So we were talking a little bit about the pharmacist taking a more front frontline role, and there's lots of services that you guys have started to implement. Like I now go and get my flu shot there, right? Yeah. Now, assuming if we ever have a virus, I assume. Right. We're going to get going to get our coronavirus shot there as well and things like that. But the pharmacist has really moved uh, at least at a community based pharmacist like what you're doing, because you guys, 9200 locations. I mean, you're in it. You're the community base. You know, it's it's yeah. it's like you are, you know, <laughs> you're a model. Maybe the police department should follow. None, nonetheless, we won't take that. But you're out there in the community and you're on every corner. And I think that's really unique uh, for a lot of businesses. I think the only one I would say is just like that is Starbucks. So when you look at that, um, what, what kind of things are you having to do for the pharmacist? I mean, because that's a lot of stress, a lot of education, a lot of more face time when they've been more used to, hey, well, take the pills and sort the pills and, and do those kind of things. I'm not, I'm not trying to you know, say that wasn't important because that is important doing that, but they've been much more proactive and out front. What, do you, what are you doing to kind of take care of them for that? Yeah, a lot of it is um, just relooking and rethinking our staffing models and trying to get, um, you know, call it non-strategic um, work out of their workday um, mm-hmm. as much as possible. And part of that is is staffing. Part of that is just be, being better at our own process and automating and, and digitizing everything that we're doing and, you know, back in the supply chain, everything. So um, because you're absolutely right, what pharmacists love to do um, and what they're most passionate about is actually helping customers and giving them advice and, and taking what they've learned. These are highly trained, highly educated professionals with a ton of expertise that's expanding in terms of the role that they're playing. And they want to be talking to patients. And so through this, they've been able to you know, continue to be a really essential resource for people. And again, this is part of our learning is how do we take... Um, you know, costs and process and bureaucracy out of the daily routines of the pharmacy so that that pharmacist can step into that role that they're um, fully trained and passionate to deliver. And so it's another big part of our, our strategy is to, is to leverage the expertise that's there. And the other thing is, um, you know, our store managers as well are also trained pharmacists. And so there's expertise holistically in our organization that we want to make sure we're bringing to the forefront, um, you know, in this next phase. Um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, this, as we get into uh, vaccinations and, and increased testing, we're going to be right in the middle and in the core of that. And so 
I think you'll see the pharmacist and the locations and the role that we're playing in the community really expand even further as a result of all that. Well, and I think I think for I, us a great opportunity for our people. Yeah, and I think you, if you look at it, that, really gets to greater value for Walgreens as a brand, greater value to the community. And in fact, if we think about it, I'm just sitting here going through my own thought process. For a lot of the pharmacists, they see the patient, or in this case, the customer, because that's what you call them, uh, more than the doctor does on a regular basis. That's 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 phenomenal when you think about it. All right, talking about somebody we need to see. I got to see this advertiser, and I'll be right back after this message. C-Suite Radio. And we are back. Hey, don't forget, we've got every single Friday, we're getting together as a community for the C-Suite Network as we get together and network in our mixers on Friday. So email me or the team will let you know. We'll put it right into the chat so that you know more about what we're doing every single Friday as we're trying to get together more and more. You know, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of literally of events going on online. And of course, we were doing a lot of those face-to-face. We can't do them face-to-face, so we do the next best thing. And quite frankly, they're turning out even better than some of the face-to-face, So which has been great. So come and join us at the C-Suite Network. Love to have you. And we're talking right now uh, to my good friend at Walgreens, the Chief Marketing Officer, Patrick McLean. And this is all business with Jeffrey Hazen on C-Suite Radio. Now, one of the things that's intriguing for me, Pat, listening to you, is I know your background. You came from TD Bank, and you came from Capital One. Had I not known that, and I'm listening to you now, I would have thought you've been with Walgreens for 20 years. (laughs) How do you, how do you, and I always find this unique about chief marketing officers, quite frankly, more than pretty any other officer all right, is that you have to like become part of the brand. You have to drink the Kool-Aid, as I like to say, or drink the champagne, as some others would probably like to say. How did you, how did you acclimate so quickly and become so versatile in the language and the, the, you know, the, the brand of, of Walgreens? Because I'm finding it to be very impressive. Well, thank you very much for that. I, you know, a couple of thoughts. I mean, first of all, while um, it may seem like financial services is so far removed from healthcare and retail, there's actually a lot of parallels there. Um, sure. And you know, the financial services is very much a, a service orientation, and there is a omni-channel and retail, digital, mobile component to it, just like there is in in um, uh, in this business. And um, you know, if you think about the timing of when I was in financial services, it was going through a similar transformation. Uh, with the advent of mobile banking and mobile payments and online banking and all of that. And and so it's a very similar uh, move uh, in terms of like trying to transition from a, a, a physical retailer into this omni-channel world that we talked about. And then I spent a decade before that in telecom and same thing. You, had the, you know, the old phone company trying to become a broadband wireless company and and all that, and it's a very similar, um, you know, I would say market dynamic, similar customer dynamic. And so it's it's actually come a little bit more naturally than maybe it, it might look like on paper. Um, and uh, I, I just, when I joined Walgreens, I joined because I just, I loved the opportunity and the purpose behind uh, the business. And, you know, to be able to, to be in healthcare, and you know, also be an essential service in terms of being available from a retail perspective in a time when people need to get in and out, and you know, very quickly be able to get what they need, including their their pharmacy um, need. 
um, you know, there's, it's been an incredible personal experience to be part of that purpose. And who would have guessed, and I knew that was going to be the case, but then who would have guessed that all of this would have happened and we would have been in the middle of a pandemic and that purpose right. would have come to light in such an intense way. And so it's really just accelerated my learning curve and accelerated my own, um, you know, just uh, intense indoctrination into the business and into the industry. And uh, it's been, it's been incredibly gratifying. It's been exhausting, honestly, Um, but it's been uh, really gratifying and I've loved every minute of it, um, even though it's been stressful and intense, but I love the brand. The people here are amazing. Um, Our team members are really our heroes and, and there's just an element of kindness and purpose uh, to who we are. It's in our DNA. And that's, as you know, as a CMO, that's one of the hardest things to get right. And so oh. we've got a lot of real ingredient here that is magical. And, and I think you're going to see the Walgreens brand and the business come out really strong. Well, one of the things you had to adapt was, was Red Nose Day and the whole initiative around that. I mean, you raised $200 million so far. And, uh, how, how how did that change for you? I mean, uh, did you guys like, oh my crap, what are we going to do with Red Nose Day? I, that was I, I pretty got, much it. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that was pretty much it. I mean, we, we've been their partner, their exclusive retail partner for five years now. And yeah, you know, we love that uh, that cause. I mean, it's uh, erasing child poverty. I mean, yeah. and, and you think about what we've been through and there's never been a more important time for that. Uh, and so... You know, the, the, the anchor activity in that program over the last five years has been we've literally sold physical red noses in the store. And when you're telling people not to touch their face, it didn't make any sense to like, you know, hey. Oh, yeah. I nose. didn't even think about that. I, I wouldn't. I guess I wouldn't have thought about that. I'm glad you did. <laughs> so somewhere, somewhere in, uh, in a Walgreens warehouse are, I think, eight or nine million red noses. Um, because we decided we couldn't do that. And yeah. we very quickly pivoted because we wanted to keep the program because it's got a tremendous energy, obviously a great cause. Right. Our team members absolutely love it. So we turned it digital. And um, just to tell the short story of it, basically, you could go online, you could donate uh, to Red Nose Day, and it would unlock a digital uh, nose, red nose filter on Snapchat, Insta- Instagram, or Facebook. And, uh, and then you could share this, this photo and this filter of yourself to spread the word. And it was just like hugely successful, lots of celebrity engagement with our partnership with NBC, the comic relief. And, uh, you know, it was very successful and a lot of fun and our team members got really engaged in it as well. So, so thanks for that. Well, hats off to you or red nose off to you, uh, for doing that. That was awesome. And keep it up. I have another one for you. I've always I've been involved with the Pulmonary Hypertension Association, and these folks are afflicted with it, and it's it's a death sentence. Once you get it, there is no cure for it, and uh, they have a tough time breathing, and their their lips go purple, and that's how you can tell if somebody's really got it. I would love to do something with purple lips at some point. Put put on some purple lipstick and say I like that. Guy. All right, let's talk been, offline. I like it exactly. Fantastic. Hey, Patrick, thank you so much, Patrick, the CMO of Walgreens. Thank you for being in all business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Thanks for having me, Jeffrey. At the end of every show, I'd like to talk about what I learned from the show and my guest. But before that, don't forget tune in a little bit later. I'm going to be talking with Lisa Rorick, and she's the founder of the RFP Success Company. We're going to talk about how to win in the RFP world, okay? But what I learned from Patrick today was this. Roles 
change. Roles change. We were talking about the pharmacist, and don't forget that pharmacist is now taking a bigger frontline role than ever before. I, I've always noticed that. You go to the pharmacists, and they're, they're subject matter experts, but now you're starting to see talk about all kinds of different things, giving shots. Uh, and now, of course, with COVID, they're in the front line. And you actually see a pharmacist more than you see your doctor. So sometimes we got to step back and look at the roles based on the changing times and see what we must do to adapt. Adapt, change, or die. That's the name of the game. My next guest today is an expert at standing out because we're not just competing on knowledge and experience, but also for attention, right? That's where it goes. You got to grab that attention to win the business. Lisa Rorick is the CEO and founder of the RFP Success Company and has turned RFPs into a science. What's an RFP? request for proposal. Her expertise and level of success in this arena is unparalleled, and she's also one of our Elite Thought Council members. And we're going to talk to her about how to win an RFP, what we should be doing, and some of the big mistakes that we make. And what's that one tip? She gives it to us in this interview. Lisa, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you here. Let's talk about RFP, which means request for proposal. Yes, and that's the way a lot of big businesses or medium-sized business typically, you know, because yep. you have to be of a certain size when you go out and request for proposals. And you said you're tired of reading these RFPs, which <laughs> I got to imagine they got to be the most boring things in the world. What makes them boring to you and what makes for a good RFP? Yeah, you know, what makes them boring is that, you know, it's technical. It tends to be technical stuff, right? Uh, the government or corporation is purchasing something and they need a lot of answers to questions yep. and we answer them in a very technical way. And I don't know about you, but I don't really want to keep reading a bunch of technical stuff. I want to know what you can do for me. Why are you going to be the trusted partner? Why is your solution the right one? And I want to get a feel for who you are and why I want to trust you and your company to purchase my services. And so one of the things that we tell our, our clients all the time is like, put some personality in it. You know, there's human beings on the other end of this RFP reading your response. Yeah. Show us what you got. Yeah. Do you, do you is it always on price? No, you know, yeah. it used to be, and it's, it's, uh, that's changed quite a bit because what state governments or corporations are finding is that that kind of bit them in the butt, right? Yeah. That uh, the value is where it's at. And so you have to show your value. If you're going to be the high priced per, uh, company going in there and you know that you should know that to some degree, you sure as hell better uh, have some good value that you're adding and why you're the ones. But price yeah. is not always by any means the reason they buy. Tell you a quick story. Years ago in Sioux Falls, they tore down the zip feed mills, a huge, tall building. I think it's about 15, 20. Now in wow. South Dakota, that's a 15, 20 stories, big, tall building. <laughs> Tallest building in South Dakota is the downtown Holiday Inn City Center. It's nine stories. So they tore down this big zip feed mill. And when they did an implosion, everybody showed up. Thousands of people showed up on a snowy day. And they went, boom, they blew, they blew it up. And it just shifted and tilted. And you, across the crowd, it went deathly silent after this dynamite went off. And someone finally yelled, that's what you get when you get the low bid. And, and <laughs> so that's classic. 
Isn't it classic? And so yeah. what are the what are the things that make up a great RFP? You said have some personality, doesn't have to be the low bid. I mean, how how can I win? You know, I, I participate in RFPs. Sometimes I've said, nope, not doing it, you know, because they were really looking for us to do a lot of work and do all the work for them. And I didn't think right. we were going to get it. So I thought, well, why am I going through that price? But what, first of all, what really helps me win one? Yeah, there's a couple of key things that, you know, every time I meet a buyer, um, anytime I have an opportunity to talk to somebody in procurement, I ask the question, what are your top, the top three mistakes people make when they are, when, when you're reading their RFPs? And by far, the number one is that they don't answer the questions in the way that they were asked. So mm -hmm. it's kind of crazy. We get in our head, we, we go copy and paste out of a content library, but it's really important to think about the question as it's being asked and answer the question. If it's a yes or no question, answer yes or no. That should be the first word that is written down. Then you can elaborate a little, little bit, but that's number one, and answer all parts of the question. The second thing is, is that the RFP is not about you. As much as we yeah. think it is, it's not about you. It's about the solution that you provide and what it's going to do for the client. And it's a subtle nuance, but it's huge. And that's the biggest way you're going to win is to take care of those two things. And, and you got to match them too, don't you, Lisa? You have to match it. You have to say, this is what they're asking for. This is what I do. I've got to speak in their language, not my yep. language, right? Yep. That's part of it. That is part of it, a huge part of it. You know, it's interesting. We did a, did a little analysis on an RFP. I was doing a review, an RFP review of somebody's past proposal. And I did an analysis of all of the sentences on the first 10 pages how, what percentage started with the word I or we or the company name? And it was mm -hmm. over 50%. It was like 52%. No, stop talking about you. Stop talking about you as the company. Like we do this, we do that, we do that. No, you need to be talking about what is in it for the client, what you know to be true. Stop making it about you. I think that's cool. Like if you're going to go to France, speak French. Right. Right, <laughs> you'll, yeah, get, you'll get get mad that everybody's treating you like crap. Well, hello. Right, yeah, I was gonna say if you speak French when you go to France, they right. treat you nicer. They treat you a lot nicer. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's that's a good lesson to learn. That's a very good lesson to learn. What's the biggest uh, struggle businesses have when responding to an RSVP? Yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, the biggest struggle I would say for small businesses where they don't have a proposal unit, it's not something that they do on a regular basis, is that RFPs suck. I don't know if I can say that live with you right now. Yeah. But no, absolutely. I say a lot worse on my on this show, let me tell you that. Yeah, but they yeah. do. It, they, You know, because my first feeling is when you get an RFP is probably, uh, oh, crap, it's a lot of work. But, you know, you got to get out of that, first of all, and say, hey, what a great opportunity. I got a yep. shot at this. And yep. I'm, I'm, one of the, I'm one of the few that have been selected. Maybe it's 50 or maybe it's five. I don't know. I, but I want to know that. Uh, would, would, you, would you ask them? Would you say, hey, how many are people are participating? Yeah. Sometimes yeah. they might not tell you, but, it, you know, it just depends. You can also tell, like, in a government proposal, sometimes you can tell if you go to the bidders conference, you can see who else is bidding. So, you know, sometimes Ooh, corporations cool. have that, but go governments almost always have a bidder's conference of some sort that you can check out. So, so yeah, you should know how many are bidding for what, sure. So, I, so other struggles, what are some other struggles that people have when they think about that? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, it's kind of interpreting what what the requirements are. You know, there's a lot of stuff. Um, getting on top of it right out of the gate. I don't know how many calls we get on a weekly basis that say, hey, we've got an RFP that's due next week. Can you help? And I'm like, no, you, you cannot put together a solid response in a week. I mean, unless it's a one-page checklist, maybe, but... Yeah. <laughs> But for something big yeah. is tough. Yeah, if you yeah. if you they if they give you a month, take the month. Use the month. Don't Use wait to the last three days. And that's that's yeah. a big one. I I will bet you that ninety percent of people wait to the last few days to go. Wait till the last few days, and they have no idea. Like the last few days is like production, shipping. If it's got to be shipped, all the final reviews, polishing it, making sure you've got your theme in there. I mean, you should have a draft mm-hmm. done a week out. So you know, trying to pull the whole thing together. I mean, you could probably maybe pull it off, but it's going to be crap and you're going to lose. So why bother? I got, I got some more questions I want to ask you about, like what's the most that's ever been spent to go after an RFP? I'd like to know about that. And I want to talk about RFPs that sometimes I think are rigged. Okay, we're going to be right back after this message. C-Suite Radio. Hey, everybody. We're back live on LinkedIn and Facebook because we're bringing you all business with Jeffrey Hazlett. So excited to be a part of this. Today, we're talking about how to win an RFP. What's an RFP? Do you even know what it is? Yeah, if you're in business, you should know what it is. And especially if you're going after big business, you're really going to have to know what an RFP is because they're still being used all over the place. I won't say all the time because you can win business without an RFP. But if you're going to be in an RFP, we're getting some of the great things that we're getting from Lisa Rorick. She's the founder and CEO of the RFP Success Company. So listen, if you need some help putting these things together, you call Lisa. That's what you want to do because she's the expert. And she's uh, been an active member in our thought council here on the C-Suite Network. Hey, um, what's the most money you ever seen spent on an RFP? Uh, on an RFP, like what, what the contract value is? No, no. Like, like putting your package together to go after the business. Yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, what, what probably the most that somebody spent on our help Doing that is like $35,000, probably on the high end. Um, But that doesn't count the internal cost, right? Which most people don't track. It's a lot of money that people spend internally. You know, right before the break, we were talking about struggles and I want to just pop in with one more. The other challenge, unless you've got a proposal unit, is that you're pulling people off of their current work to come and bid on the proposal right? To come and work on the proposal. And these are people that don't have any proposal experience and they might be the people that have the most time. They're not even the right people. So you waste a lot of time and money and resources uh, and nobody generally accounts for that, but it can be in a hundred thousand dollars, right? Yeah. All done. yeah. I mean, I would tell you uh, an inside thing that uh, years ago, the South Dakota, the state of South Dakota went for the particle accelerator. I don't know if you remember that, but if you ever oh. watch Big Bang, they actually mention it. And I uh, went to, it ended up being built in uh, Bern, Switzerland, but we went for it in South Dakota because we have these big, huge gold, uh, gold mines and they're being, you know, evacuated. So what are you yeah. going to do with these big shafts underground and, uh, you know, where it's really dark and it's quiet and so forth. And so we went after it. I think we spent about a hundred grand. I mean, we made leather bound individual books, uh, yes. you know, every full color back then, this was in the eighties, late eighties. And, you know, this was a full color. You're spending 10, 20 bucks a page, you know, and then all kinds of things that we did. So it was amazing. What, it's like the so I mentioned, Remember. I'm sorry. Remember when they were just not that long ago, about a year ago, they were doing Amazon, the new Amazon headquarters. 
And right. all of the states were like, I know from Arizona, we shipped them a saguaro cactus. That was not cheap. <laughs> like those kinds of things, that's like crazy big. Yep. So is that a good thing, getting one of those cactuses? Um, I don't know. Arizona did not win, so I'm guessing no. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna. That was a sticky RFP, but not quite as good. There you go. It was a little. So yeah, and I, who ended up winning? Washington D.C. or did New York win? I, I think I, there was a few, but something yeah, like they, yeah, they moved it around. That was a, a really great deal for Amazon. Uh, not yeah. so good for some of the states, maybe, but who, who knows? Hey, I mentioned about RFPs being rigged. So sometimes yep. when you see a request for proposal, it's clearly written in a language that I can look at that I believe I look at, I might be biased, that it's it's like, oh, I already know who's gonna win this because it was kind of written by them. Do you yep. see that from time? And then how do you overcome that? Yeah, so a couple of answers to that. The first one is yes, we absolutely see it. You can, we can sometimes tell, a lot of times tell based on the timeline. So if it's like a really hefty RFP, but they give you two weeks to respond, we're like a little suspicious. There's no bidders conference, again, especially in the government space. Um, and yeah, if it's written, like we need, you must have two senior, you know, certified FSAs, which is an actuary who have 10 plus years of experience in this particular teeny tiny specialty area, then you're like, Oh, well, nobody's yeah. got that except this one company. Um, but sometimes they're, they're rigged that, and you can win. I mean, it is possible to unseat an incumbent too. But what you have to do is you have to plant seeds of doubt. So you've right. got to make them question why the person that they have chosen or the company that they have chosen to, to win that is not the best choice. Uh, it, that takes a lot of work and the, cha the chance is still pretty low, but you can do it. We've seen it happen. Yeah. What about, you got something you call the 12 ride and die principles. I just love that. Tell me what that's all about. Ride and ride and die. It sounds like something like a cowboy movie, ride and die, you know? You know, the ride and die are our internal kind of, it's like our internal mission statement. Like this is what we believe in. Um, and if people don't align with those, they're probably not the best fit either to work here or to be our clients. Uh, we are very honest. We're kindly honest, but we're very direct and honest. We don't have time to dilly dally and um, not worry about hurting your feelings. We tell you if this is crap, it's crap. Let's turn it around and see what we can do to make it better. That's one of our ride or die, but it's basically our mission statement. That's cool. I love it. I got to see that. I got to, I got to come up with that. Uh, I, I always say, let's saddle up and ride. I say that a lot. So I love that. Um, it could be even in the intro. Uh, I think it's even in the intro of this, of the show. So, Hey, RFPs can be really intimidating. I mean, they look like huge projects, big projects. And I, you know, you could, like I said earlier, you could say, Oh crap, but I look at it as, Oh, what a great opportunity. Yes. So how do you simplify the process for yourself and your clients? How, what's the best way to simplify it? You know, um, <laughs> wow, that's a really good question. I would say you've got to do some work on the front end. And mm -hmm. so what we do on the front end is we lay out our response in whole. Here's, here's entirely what we want the document, the template to look like, even with some tables in there to help guide writers into answering. Most companies don't do that. And what happens mm -hmm. is it bites them in the butt at the end because they haven't paid attention to the requirements. So on the front end, we, we really lay out that template, making sure that all of the requirements are laid out so that we don't miss something. 
And it's, it's a, actually a pretty simple thing to do on the front end, especially if you've got the right person doing that. But most people don't do that, again, unless they're proposal professionals. And it bites them in the butt every single time. Yeah. So it's kind of like laying out the skeleton, the, the end, in, end in mind, kind of the bones of it. Yeah. And then you go back and add all the flesh parts to it. Is that yes. what you're doing? That's yeah. exactly what we're doing. Yep. All right. Well, speaking about adding some bones, I need to go talk about my great advertisers. I'll be right back after this message. C-Suite Radio. And we are back live right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hizzett on C-Suite Radio. Don't forget C-Suite Radio, number one business podcast in the world, the biggest, the best. And I'm not just saying that because my show's a big show on it. And the fact that I own the entire network, I'm saying that because it's true. You know, we're adding another podcast about every other day. So if you're looking to be a podcaster, come talk to us. If you have a podcast show, certainly come talk to us. And if you're looking for great podcast shows to listen to and learn and get motivated, educated, and inspired, this is where you come right here at the C-Suite Radio. Today, I'm talking with Lisa Rorick. She is the CEO and founder of the RFP Success Company, talking about how to build great, successful RFPs. What's one trick, Lori, that, uh, or Lisa, what's one trick that people need to implement in their RFPs that they're not currently doing? What, let's say, what, what's a secret trick or something that, that a lot of people just don't do? Uh, yeah, so one of my favorite secret, secret <laughs> tips is to tear your answers so that you, so from a behavioral perspective, uh, we all have different behavioral styles, right? And there's two behavioral styles that are very thorough and they're gonna read everything, but there's two behavioral styles that are skimmers. They're gonna skim through and they're not gonna read all the ins and outs. So the first thing that you should do for every question Mm. is have a very small little, uh, almost an executive summary answer for every question so that if the skimmers are going to skim, they will read the most important points in that first pair. I say paragraph, but please don't make it like 18 sentences sentences long. It still should be short and sweet, but give the skimmers something to sink their teeth into. Do you almost do an inverted inverted pyramid where the most important stuff's at the top and then you build the other points? Yeah. Yeah. Especially for those uh, most technical people love to pontificate. (laughs) <laughs> right. Uh-huh. And they'll write, you know, 30 pages on one answer. And that's not an exaggeration. Uh, nobody's very few people are going to read all of that. So get your most important point here. And then if you feel the need, I would discourage it. But if you feel the need to give all that detail, then it's there for the other people, but you haven't lost in translation, that other group of people. So how's business for you? How, how's the RFP business right now? Are RFPs up or down? You know, in the federal space, they're up. Uh, wow. We don't work in the federal space. In the government, uh, in the state, local, municipality, government space, they're down. And corporates, a little bit, I'd say a little bit down, but a little bit more neutral. Um, yeah, it, it's definitely been an interesting time for sure. Well, so this is the time that everybody needs to pay attention and uh, Dot the I's, cross the T's. Make sure you've got an expert. Listen, you got a you got a heart problem, go to cardiologist. You got a, a muffler problem, go to Midas. Right. So if you got an RFP, go find a real good coach that's going to help you through this. In fact, before I met Lisa, I didn't know that this even existed, and now I know it is. And so now I want to recommend everybody to her because, hey, I'm telling you, you want to win business. 
You want to win business, get in shape, get in shape. Best way to get in shape is get a coach, get somebody that's going to help you do the process. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. RFP Success Thank Company, you. we're talking about how to win in this RFP world. And it's been a pleasure, Lisa, having you right here on C-Suite Radio with Jeffrey Hazel, all business with Jeffrey Hazel. Thanks so much. It's been great. Thanks, Jeffrey. The end of every show, I like to talk about what did I learn? I learned a lot of different things. I wrote a number of things like showing your value and and being able to speak their language. That was a good one. But you know what I really liked was the thought uh, that you sit down and write the outline, kind of design the bones of what you want, and then go back in and fill and make sure that you don't miss any of the little fine tune points. Because listen, some of us are a little bit more broader vision, some of us more detail. And that was the other thing I thought was real critical I got as kind of a learning from her was you got to make sure you're going to have to have all those people on your team and look at each proposal. Make sure you don't miss those little nuances because you don't want to miss something that could have been right there in front of you and then you lose the business. You want to win it. That's what I learned right here is how to be a winner again right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazel and C-Suite Radio. Don't forget, tell your friends to tune in and listen not only to All Business, but all shows on C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.